When the car crashed, they were only about 300 yards away from the house. They almost made it home. After they hit two trees, the car flipped end over end, and when it finally landed, it landed upside down on top of Edith Metzger, and she died of a broken neck and massive chest injuries. Ruth and Jackson were both ejected from the car, and Ruth landed safely. She was temporarily paralyzed for a while, but she ended up escaping the accident with no long-term injuries. But Jackson was absolutely nowhere to be found. A patrolman named Earl Finch, who responded to the scene, and a neighbor, they started to search the woods for him, and eventually they found his body about 50 feet away in the brush. The car was going so fast that it was estimated he covered that 50 feet in under a second, and the coroner's report said he was alive until he hit his head on a tree about 10 feet off the ground. The damage to his body was so extensive that an open casket just was not an option. The next day, Clement Greenberg found out that Lee was staying at their friend and fellow artist place, Paul Jenkins' apartment in Paris. Clement called Jenkins and said that he needed to tell him something, and that when he did, Jenkins needed to stay calm. Uh, And as soon as Jenkins turned to tell Lee what happened, she could already tell, and she said, Jackson is dead. And then her screams were apparently absolutely horrifying, and she just collapsed. She got back to Springs two days later, and she started to plan Jackson's funeral. When the rest of the Pollock family got to Springs, it got a little bit awkward. Uh, Stella tried to give Lee a hug, and Lee pushed her away and said, quote, Where were you when he needed you? Which is both a fair and unfair thing to say. I can only imagine the level of grief, anger, just the utter devastation that was happening. Jackson's funeral was on Wednesday, August 15, 1956, at the Springs Chapel. Before the funeral, Hans Namuth tried to get a picture of Jackson's body, because it's Hans Namuth, and he just really can't help himself. But we do have the final picture ever taken of Jackson, which I'll post. Uh, Edith actually took it that day, right before they went out, and it's of Jackson and Ruth in the backyard, and he looks really rough. Lee asked Clement Greenberg to give the eulogy until Clement insisted that he was going to say a few words about Edith Metzger, so she told him never mind. And that was a pretty stand-up move by Greenberg, but also a totally understandable reaction by Lee. The Reverend George Nicholson of the Amagansett Presbyterian Church spoke instead, and he read a passage from Romans 8 from the Bible, which a bunch of people there thought was, quote, awkwardly irrelevant. Lee sat alone in the front pew of the church, and the rest of Jackson's family sat in the second row. With Jackson gone, there was no more need to keep up the pretenses of that relationship. Some funeral attendees said they were surprised at how little emotion Lee showed during the service, with someone describing her reaction as enigmatic, and it looked like she was also holding back a sense of relief. And of course there was relief. He was shooting up the house with a hunting bow and beating the crap out of her. She's lucky to be alive right now. After the funeral, there was a smaller service at the Green River Cemetery, and Lee stood away from everyone and was alone again. Uh, Jip 2.0 was there, and he was whimpering, which is the saddest dog sound, and Sandy wept uncontrollably. Pretty soon after Jackson's funeral, Stella moved back to Tingley, Iowa to take care of one of her brothers, so her story comes full circle to episode one. Uh, the only difference is, instead of withholding pie from her kids, she withholds it from herself. Because on April 20th, 1958, Stella died from starving herself to death. Charles said, quote, She made a decision, a conscious decision, that she wasn't going to live anymore. After Jack died, she just stopped wanting to live. And I thought we hit maximum depressing with an innocent young woman surviving Hitler and then being killed by Jackson, but now we have an old woman committing a slow suicide. Jesus. But why stop there? A few years later, in 1963, Sandy died. 
It turns out all the extra hours he had to work because Jackson wasn't helping with Stella's care were at a secret defense department facility where he was working with dangerous chemicals that gave him leukemia. And I gotta be honest, I have no idea how to naturally transition out of this because we do need to talk about some recent discoveries about what Jackson's paintings are, so we'll just have to call this one of the more ungraceful dismounts from a story. But I will say this, after Jackson died, Lee absolutely flourished professionally and became recognized as a great artist in her own right, outside of any connection as being the wife of Jackson Pollock. Owen oh, Ruth Kligman? She found herself another Beethoven soon after the crash when she started a relationship with Willem de Kooning. And I don't know why, but that made me really happy. I feel like the only way that could have ended better is if she started a relationship with a guy named Booty. Okay, now that we know the entire story, it's time to finally talk about what Jackson Pollock's drip paintings really are. When I was reading about his drip technique, the memories arrested in space, him saying he controls the flow of the paint and that nothing is an accident, I was like, okay, this is just someone trying to make their thing sound more complex and profound, and he's pimping out his own brand. I went into this with the same assumption that I think a lot of people have, is that these are just random drips and pours. And because everyone else thought it was random, lots of artists tried to forge his paintings, especially after he died and his paintings got increasingly collectible and shot up in value. And for a long time, trying to forge a Pollock wasn't a bad gamble, because who knew how many were actually out there? He wouldn't sign or date a lot of his paintings, and he gave a bunch of way to settle bills, he probably drunkenly lost some, uh, oh, and then health emotion specialist and Miami amateur DJ Dr. Mark misplaced a few. And the drip technique sort of lends itself to attempted forgery, just randomly drip, say you bought it off a drunk boniker and there you go. Lee and other experts ended up being crucial to helping weed out fake Pollock paintings for a long time through something called provenance, which is the verification process of a painting to determine its authenticity. Sometimes you can tell just by looking at it that it's a forgery, but a lot of time it involves a full investigation and deciphering clues. This can include reviewing for exhibition or gallery stickers, seeing it in pictures or referenced in print, documentation of previous owners, and sampling of the paint and materials to see if they match the type used by the artist at the time. But then technology caught up to Jackson's brain, and we can now use math and imagery analysis to authenticate his paintings. Which unfortunately means we have to talk about theoretical math. This episode is just death, sadness, and theoretical math, and that's just awful from end to end. I'm not sure math and geriatric suicide podcasts are shooting up the charts right now. And when it comes to math, I am legitimately a moron. I'm fine at figuring out 20% at a check, that's about it. So this took a while to digest. In 1992, a guy named John Briggs published a book called Fractals, The Patterns of Chaos, and made the observation that Jackson's drip paintings looked like they contained fractal patterns, begging the question, what the hell is a fractal? Okay, uh, I have no idea what this means. A fractal is a subset of Euclidean space for which the Hausdorff dimension strictly exceeds the topological dimension. And really, that sounds just like absolute gibberish to me. But from what I can gather, a fractal is a geometric object where the total shape of the object is constructed of replicated smaller versions of the same shape, which are made of smaller versions of the same shape, and so on and so on. It's a never-ending pattern of self-similarity across different scales, and this whole thing stems out of chaos theory, which we just started to figure out in the 80s and 90s. And if chaos theory sounds at all familiar, it's because that's what Dr. Ian Malcolm was talking about in Jurassic Park during the Jeep scene. Must go faster. Not that one, the other one. Oh, oh it, 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 it uh, simply uh, deals with uh, predictability in complex systems. 
The shorthand is the, the butterfly effect. A butterfly can flap its wings in Peking and Central Park, you get rain instead of sunshine. Chaos theory studies patterns and organizations within nonlinear systems, chaotic systems. Uh, nonlinear systems are things that are characterized by unpredictability, like weather, population, stock markets, things like that. And within all those systems, patterns emerge. Uh, we can't perfectly predict the weather, but we can figure out what it's likely to be next week, and we can say the stock market will probably go up or down during a certain time period. There are entire wings of theoretical math and chaos theory that deal with fractals, and it was mind-numbing to read. But the main takeaway is that the graphs created from the math of most chaotic processes are fractals. And thankfully, for our purposes, we just need to know how fractals apply to nature. So the math is going to be easy, and it's the part where the show becomes a nature podcast. In 1904, a Swedish mathematician named Helge von Koch identified one of the first fractal curves, which was eventually called the Koch curve. Koch took an equilateral triangle, then drew another equilateral triangle on top of it, but turned a bit, with the points of the second triangle meeting equidistant between the lines in the original triangle. That's called the new iteration, and eventually it creates a hexagram that looks like the Star of David. And if you keep making new iterations, there becomes, per a text from my buddy Steve, who got a math degree from MIT, quote, finite areas bounded by infinite curves. Go chaos, unquote. And that was an incredibly unhelpful text, and I really resented the excitement. But if you stop at the fourth iteration, it looks suspiciously like a snowflake, which is why the Koch curve is also called the Koch snowflake. And snowflakes are an example of naturally occurring fractal patterns. Since infinite iterations aren't possible, nature gets as close as it can, and fractal-like patterns, or natural fractals, exist everywhere in nature. There are natural fractals in coastlines, mountains, seashells, trees, biological circulatory systems, ocean waves, and even the structure of galaxies. And I'll post pictures for this episode of all of this. The Koch snowflake, natural occurrences of fractals, all this insanity. One of the most famous examples of natural fractal math is from a 1967 article titled How Long is the Coast of Britain by mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot, who is credited as discovering fractals and coining the name in 1975. The paper is a study of the coastline paradox, which says the total length of a coastline is dependent on the scale of measurement. So if you use a yardstick, then you'd get a shorter result than a ruler because your measurements would be on a curvier line. And that's obviously a paradox because the length doesn't actually change. And if you keep shortening the unit of measurement with infinite decimals, the coastline length mathematically will infinitely grow. In 1999, a group of scientists led by a physicist named Richard Taylor began testing Jackson Pollock drip paintings because he wanted to see if there was order in the chaos. They took high-definition images of 20 of Jackson's paintings and then separated the images into smaller component photos, creating over 5 million images that range from the entire painting itself down to less than a tenth of an inch. They then compared those images to a similar set broken up the same way, only those pictures were taken of randomly drip patterns using a pendulum structure they made cleverly called the Pollockizer. And the results were published in volume 399 of the scientific journal Nature, and it's pretty crazy. They found that Pollock drip paintings, unlike random drip paintings, contain mathematically identifiable patterns of varying degrees of complexity, where his skein patterns were repeated on smaller and smaller scales all the way through the entire painting. He was painting fractals the entire time, and the fractal patterns in his paintings were similar to those found in nature. The study also found that as time went on, Jackson was reaching higher and higher fractal dimensions that were increasingly complex. 
And he peaked with the fractal dimensions that the human eye most responded to with Autumn Rhythm, One, Lavender Mist, those paintings from his greatest summer. In 2005, Taylor's group used its fractal analysis on 65 drip paintings, 14 authentic Pollock paintings, and 51 forgeries, and they identified the authentic paintings with 100% accuracy. And the fractal patterns that existed in Jackson's drip paintings were even confirmed by Benoit Mandelbrot in 2007. And if you don't get the tingles from that, don't worry, neither do I, but the math nerds out there just had mathgasms. A bunch of goddamn nerds. Nerds! And just for a time frame reminder, Jackson was painting fractals over 25 years before Mandelbrot told us what they were. In 2015, 2015, we're still learning about the math of his drip paintings in 2015. A scientist named Lior Shamir published a study in the International Journal of Arts and Technology. He used a new scanning method to determine if there existed fractals in Jackson's paintings that were measurable beyond what the human eye was capable of detecting, including Zernike polynomials and Herlich textures. English, motherfucker, do you speak it? After scanning 4,024 separate images with a 93% accuracy, the program identified Pollock paintings from counterfeits that were nearly indistinguishable with the human eye. Okay, so now we have to tie this back to Jackson being the absolute disaster that he was. Richard Taylor also wanted to see if there was something about Jackson's fractals that made people so drawn to his paintings. Think of how immediately Clement Greenberg was on board and people would just stare at his art and say radical, radical all over again. And there's something about looking at Lavender Mist, Autumn Rhythm, they just look right. So Taylor ran tests on volunteers to see if they had physiological responses to seeing fractal geometries. Two-dimensional fractals have a ratio between one and two, which is identified by a capital D. The D measures the ratio between large fractal patterns and smaller ones, so it's like measuring a trunk and large branches of a tree to small branch patterns and leaves, or in a Pollock painting, the larger drips or skeins to the smaller ones. So a D of 1 is a complete lack of a fractal ratio, and then as you get closer to 2, the fractal patterns are getting proportionately more complex. One of his paintings, uh, number 14, 1948, that had a measurable fractal dimension of 1.45, and that's similar to that of coastlines, which is a little more obvious when you see it from an aerial view. And it turns out, Blue Poles wasn't sloppily put together. It had a fractal dimension of 1.72, the highest of any painting that Taylor's group tested. But 1.72 starts to go past the limits of what the human eye can see, so it looks a little sloppy because human brains aren't fully processing what we're seeing. Taylor then joined up with Carolyn Hagerhall, who was a Swedish environmental psychologist specializing in human aesthetic perception, and they formed this scientist Voltron. And I'm going to consolidate a bunch of stuff that they measured, but it included analyzing galvanic skin responses, eye movement, and retina tracking, EEG brainwaves, and brain activity measured by a functional MRI. These two people are either the best or the worst people to talk to at a party. There is no in-between. You either want to never have the conversation end or you're looking for the nearest window to jump out of. The fractal dimension of the human eye is mid-range. Uh, even the structure of the human eye is a natural fractal. The volunteers were shown all kinds of pictures, but when they saw pictures of nature or pictures of Pollock paintings with a D of 1.3 to 1.5, which is mid-range just like the eye, the brain lit up. The MRI showed stimulation of the ventrolateral cortex, which is involved with high-level visual processing, and the dorsolateral cortex, and that controls spatial long-term memory, which were expected based on how the brain processes visual patterns. 
But seeing mid-range fractals also triggered the parahippocampus, which regulates emotion and is the same part of the brain that's active when people listen to music. It's the part of the brain that helps you relax. So mid-range fractals, the range that occurs on average the most in nature, are relaxing to see. It's almost like the human eye triggers in your brain that whatever is happening right now is supposed to be happening and there's no reason for a fight-or-flight response. And that's one of the reasons why people like watching the ocean waves crash or walking in the woods. It really is relaxing visually, and so is looking at a Jackson Pollock drip painting. So if you really think about it, his drip paintings were his unconscious way of trying to calm the storm in his brain to try to relax. When he was talking to, I think it was Hans Hoffman in the beginning of that Tennessee Williams P-Town summer, Jackson said that famous quote, I am nature. And the crazy part is, he really meant it. His art, what was inside of his head and what he was expressing on canvas really was nature. It was the raw mathematics and physics that underlies the natural world. Just think about all those times when he was hammered and crying hysterically and saying, I am a great painter. I mean, how much of that frustration was born out of not knowing how to explain to people exactly what he was doing? He was already getting locked into institutions. If Jackson Pollock tried to explain what his drip paintings were, he would be in a straitjacket inside of 36 seconds. I mean, what's he going to say? Well, it all started with really liking to watch my father pee, and then my dick was always broke, and I peed myself a lot, and I couldn't control my emotions, so things got complicated, especially with the whiskey, and then I tapped into the very fabric of existence, stared into the abyss of infinity, and then I pet my dog and cried? No, people would think he was insane. Some people say that Jackson Pollock is overrated, and with my limited knowledge base to that, I would say, yeah, his traditional skill, his technical skill apparently wasn't great, and he didn't have a long and sustained career or show excellence across different styles of painting or different mediums. But he completely challenged the notion of what avant-garde art could be, and he elevated America as a place everyone had to acknowledge could produce world-class art. America had to be taken seriously now. And he did it by creating art that tapped into the very nature of existence and reflected both raw emotion and a theoretical mathematics that wouldn't be identified until decades later and may never be fully understood. He was also very, very sick, and in some respects he had a rough life, but at the same time he was also the epitome of privilege and was coddled and never held responsible for any of his actions or any of his decisions. And at the end of the day, he killed Edith Metzger. And he abused Lee and countless other women, and he was overall just sort of an asshole. And I'm not saying any of those things negate or justify any of the others. All of them are true. And when you look at the idea of separating the art from the artist, you can't really do that here because of the nature of Jackson's art and who he was. Jackson Pollock was nature, and nature can be both beautiful and very cruel. The hardest part about this series was trying to figure out what to include and what to leave out. There were so many people and stories in his life that were documented. Even little stuff, little details, like Naked Man with a Knife from episode number three, that ended up being Stella's favorite painting of Jackson's, which I mean, is that's just weird, but so was their relationship on the whole. Or when Lee was dating Igor, he became a portrait painter and constantly bragged about sleeping with the women who sat for him. And even when friends told Lee about it, she refused to believe them and made excuse after excuse for him, kind of foreshadowing a lot of her excuse-making with Jackson. 
in so much of that stuff. Um, I got to give credit to one of the sources in particular, Jackson Pollock and American Saga by Stephen Nifa and Gregory White Smith. It was 900 pages of unbelievable detail. Uh, it took the author seven years. And in addition to tracking down insane amounts of documents, they spoke to over 800 people. They spent days on end with Lee, Arloy, Charles, Marvin slash Jay, and Frank, and all the transcripts totaled to over 18,000 pages. They even visited all the places from his childhood. And everything that happened before and during the crash, we know from Ruth's book Love Affair, which for reasons that are now obvious, I couldn't talk about before. And a lot of her book was, I would call it, a little self-serving, and a lot of the descriptions were a bit of a stretch. For example... I don't believe that Jackson Pollock said to Ruth one time, quote, I don't believe you are right, but if you feel that way, I will pay attention to your intuition. I respect your feelings. We will work something out. Don't worry. I love you very much. I never want to hurt you, unquote. But when you are the only surviving person from that crash, you get the final say as to what happened that day. And that's just about it. Uh, if you're still listening, I can't thank you enough for taking this weird journey with me, and I hope you had fun with it. It was a crazy process, but a blast to make. So here's the deal with the next series. Uh, I'm finishing the books on The Next Artist now, so it's going to be a few weeks before I can put everything together. I really want this to be a rich and layered experience, so that takes a little bit of time, but I promise I'll work as fast as I can. It is another insane story, but it's going to be a little bit different of an experience. I want to try to mix things up so we get varied points in history, different cultures, different parts of the world. Otherwise, I'm just going to get bored. And if you like what I'm trying to put together so far and want to help me out in the meantime, uh, go ahead and rate and review the show in whatever podcast app you're using. Uh, you can really put anything in there. It just takes a few seconds and it is greatly appreciated. Oh, and if you want to reach out, you can email me at artholespodcast at gmail.com and at artholespodcast on Instagram. Until we catch back up next series, uh, take care, everyone, and I will talk to you soon. <laughs>